If you have a Bible with you, this morning we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 25. I think this is number six in our series entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner about race and ethnicity and mission. So, hear the word of God. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down with their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God, and he made atonement for the people of Israel." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I pray right now that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would give us soft hearts. I pray that you would uh, give us empathy and, and wisdom. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned before, this is number six, I believe, in our series on race, mission, and ethnicity. And last week, if you were here or if you watched the sermon online, you remember that I talked about this mixed company that went out of Egypt with Israel. Israel wasn't really a nation when they left Egypt. It was, it was sometime after that God gathered all these people. And Moses wanted us to know that there were multiple ethnicities that left, Israel, that left Egypt with them. In particular, there was one ethnicity, the Cushites. That, that there might have been as many Cushites as there were uh, sons of Jacob, and they also left. And if you remember, I told you last week, the Cushites were from the region of, of the world that we now know as sort of Somalia and Ethiopia and sort of the Horn of Africa, which on a side note, we, Samuel and I were sitting there, and I was going to tell a joke. I said, hey, look up the temperature in Djibouti for me which is typically the hottest place on earth. And I thought, I'm going to get up and say, it could be worse. It's 91 degrees right now <laughs> in Djibouti. <laughs> so that was a fail. Um, but nonetheless, the Kushites, if you remember, were black Africans. And this morning, we're going to actually zero in on one particular person who was a Kushite, who was a black African, who was one of the most important people of all the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to look at the story of Phineas, and the word Phineas in Egyptian literally means the Cushite, or the Nubian, or if you're in the 60s, the Negro. It means a black person, and it was something the Egyptians, when someone was particularly dark, that's what they would call him. And so keep that in mind as we're going through the sermon, because I'm going to pull it, it's going to become important by the end. 
So the question I'm going to start with this morning is this. What is your EQ? Do you know what EQ is? Most of us think of of things in terms of IQ, right? IQ is how smart you are, or at least how smart you are with regard to certain things. EQ is how emotionally intelligent you are. It's, it's, It's actually a thing, right? So let me give you, this is from the Dictionary of Psychology. Emotional intelligence is most often defined as the ability to perceive use, understand, and manage emotions. People with high emotional intelligence can recognize their own emotions, those of others, use emotional information to guide thinking and behavior, discern between different feelings and label them appropriately, and adjust emotions to adapt to different environments. In in other words, you're not a fool, especially when dealing with other people. So let me give you like a a very simple illustration of of low emotional intelligence and high emotional intelligence. Right, low emotional intelligence. You, let's say you're a man and you and your wife are getting ready to go to a big dinner party for your office or some event, and her, her, she's having trouble with her hair, and she comes out and she goes, how does it look? Low emotional intelligence would say, oh, horrible. Right? It's not going to go well for you or anybody. She comes out and asks the same question. High emotional intelligence would say, if you're asking me if you're going to be the most beautiful woman at the party tonight, thumbs up, right? <laughs> In other words, you're, you're actually using emotional information and you're not, making, you're not saying foolish things. You're taking into account what other people feel and think. So, for example, there, it's measured in five areas. Self-awareness, like do you know your own emotions? Self-regulation, are you able to control and redirect disruptive emotions? Social skill, can you manage relationships to get along with others? And the two I want you to keep in mind today as we're talking is empathy, considering other people's feelings, especially when making decisions, and motivation, being aware of what motivates them. Okay? So the big things about emotional intelligence I want you to think of is empathy and motivation. You see, as we're looking at this series on race um, and ethnicity and mission especially as a church that is predominantly white, one of my hopes and goals for this whole sermon series is to increase our congregation's emotional intelligence, increase our congregation's ability to empathize, increase our congregation's ability to understand where other people are coming from, because to the extent we do that, we will be able to have better relationships with them and to bless them. So with all of that said, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at uh, first, a sneak attack that takes place. Um, secondly, we're going to look at an improvised intercession. And finally, we'll look at a perpetual priesthood. So, what do I mean by sneak attack? Well, basically this. So, if you remember when Israel left Egypt, they were God said, I want you to go from Egypt to the promised land, and I promise you that I will take care of you the whole way. In, in other words, I promise you that I will get you into the land of Canaan. And the journey from Egypt to the land of Canaan should have taken about nine months with as many people as they had. It took 40 years. Now, why did it take 40 years? Well, it took 40 years partly because Israel was so hard-hearted, partly because Israel complained so much. It's sort of like they would complain and God would be fed up with it and he would sort of just say, take another lap around the desert. (laughs) Take another lap. Just keep going. Do it again. Like maybe at some point you'll get it. And at some point he actually says that this generation is such a bunch of complainers, you're not even going to enter the promised land. So you're just going to walk around the desert until all y'all are dead. That's what he does. And so the other issue, besides their complaining, besides their, their 
hard-heartedness, the, the other challenge they had from making it from Egypt to Canaan was that there were a lot of hostile people in the way. And that was one of the ways and one of the things God promised he would take care of for them. And so as they traveled across from, from Egypt to Canaan, they ran into all these hostile peoples. And the book of Numbers gives us a lot of accounts of those battles and things that happen. You see, when you consider what is the book of Numbers all about, it's really, they call, we call it Numbers in English because there are two censuses in there. But in Hebrew, the title of the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. In other words, here's what it was like when we were in the wilderness, right? And there, was, there were these times when we rebelled and God struck us with plagues. He sent snakes upon us, but there were other times where we were killing it. That's the context for this passage that we looked at today. Israel is actually on a roll. They are defeating God's enemies on their way to Canaan. In particular, they defeat um, a king named Sion and a king called Og. Right, starting at chapter 21. Now, Sihon and Og, by the way, were giants. <laughs> Remember when Israel looked at the promised land, they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. Later on, we find out that Sihon's bed was 15 feet long. Okay, So he was a big dude. He had a big army, and yet Israel defeated them. Now, when this rag, ragtag sort of bunch of, of refugees crossing the desert defeat people like Sihon and Og, other kings begin to take notice, and a particular king named Balak take, no, took notice. And Balak looked out, and he said, wow, I don't think I can beat these guys. So in the ancient Near East, what's, what's your first response to that? Well, I better go find a prophet who can curse them. Because if I find a prophet who can curse them, then I will win, they will lose, it'll be cool. So that's where we pick up in verses 22, 23, and 24, the story of Balaam, right? And we all know the story of Balaam's ass, right? He was beating his donkey, <laughs> and the donkey spoke to him, and he says, why do you treat me such, right? Well, the point is, is that he, Balak went to Balaam and said, I want you to curse these people, and Balak, Balaam could not. It was almost as if he tried to curse them, and when he opened his mouth, blessing came out. And three times that happened. And Balak is paying him good money to curse Israel, and he finally says, I can't do it. Every time I open my mouth, instead of cursing coming out, blessing comes out, because these people are blessed by the very God of very gods. And Balak says, what do we do now? And Balaam says, let us take counsel together. Now what Balaam decides to do, or what Balaam suggests to him, we think, is you know what? We are never going to get Yahweh, their God, to abandon them. It's just not going to happen. He makes promises and he keeps them. So Yahweh will never abandon Israel. I think the best strategy perhaps is to get Israel to abandon Yahweh. If we can get Israel to abandon Yahweh, then they will actually be, be under the curses of his covenant and then he will take care of our problem for us. That's where we are now. That's where the story has picked up is this sort of sneak attack. They can't get God to abandon Israel, so what they're going to do is get Israel to abandon God. And the primary way they do that is through the primary thing that soldiers have been tempted by for millennia, and that is sex and food. Okay? So these Israelite soldiers are, in, are just on this long battle campaign, and suddenly what the Moabites do and the Midianites do is they send their women in to say, hey, sailor, <laughs> hey, soldier, you know. And so notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They, these invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to the, their gods. And so Israel himself yoked himself to Baal of Peor. So 
when it says the people there began to whore with the Moabites, that, that language is more than they began to have sex with Moabite women, although that was the original temptation. Did you notice the trajectory? Like the women lured them in, and they said, hey, there's going to be a big party tonight to Val, and afterward, there's going to be plenty of food to eat. Well, they went to the party. It was actually a worship service. They sacrificed to this false god, and afterward, they get to eat the meat, and it says, and thus they bowed themselves down to Baal. They, they yoked themselves. In other words, what they did here, the word whoring here is actually a feminine verb used of male people. And you think, well, why would they, you know, it, I know some of you this morning were going through your Hebrew texts and saying, why would Moses do that? Well, it's because the verb, the issue here is not so much just their adultery, but it is their spiritual adultery. That God sees himself as their husband and God sees, becomes jealous when they begin to have spiritual, commit spiritual adultery with other gods. And so, because what is it? Remember, the Ten Commandments say that God is what? He, what kind of God is He? He's a jealous God. I mean, that's something to take into account. I think we forget that, right? If you're a Christian, if you're like me, you sort of you're, you sort of get in this mode of you're like, okay, I wake up in the morning, I read my Charles Spurgeon, I do this, I say my prayers, I go to work, I do the same thing. My wife and I have devotion after dinner. We go to bed, wake up, lather, rinse, repeat. It's sort of almost like math. It's like a routine. And yet, when you consider the, the God of the Bible, he is actually a person and he becomes jealous for us. That the reason God becomes angry here is not just because we violated the law, therefore I'm angry. He becomes angry because he loves us and he, he wants to, to be our, our, our spiritual husband and when we commit spiritual adultery and violate that, he becomes upset, right? I mean, I guess where I'm going with that is that we are not, Israel is not the only ones who commit spiritual adultery, is we, we, always, we often look at the Old Testament and we sort of laugh and say, oh, Israel, they had to take another lap around the desert. Oh, Israel, all they do is complain. Oh, Israel, oh, Israel. And then oftentimes I think we don't really look in the mirror. You and I commit spiritual adultery anytime, anytime that you say my hope and comfort is in anything else than God and in the person and work of Jesus. Ask yourself that. Where is your hope and comfort in life and in death? Is it that your family's going to turn out okay? Is it that you're going to save enough for retirement? Is it that, you know, that you're not going to have to wear a mask again when variant D comes upon us, right, or whatever? If your hope and comfort is in any of those kinds of things besides the Lord your God, you are a spiritual adulterer. And God becomes upset at that. I remember when I was at Florida State, this was the kind of passage. I took, a, I took religion class. I was an English major, but I took some religion classes just to see. I was a new Christian. I thought, oh, maybe I'll learn something from these professors. <laughs> LOL. Um, but I remember sitting in class, and we had this really sweet, older professor, and this was the kind of passage he would say, now, students, this is the classic example of the Old Testament God of wrath, right? That, that almost as if God is just waiting for Israel to screw up, and as soon as they do, bam, he's going to get them. And I remember sitting there think, thinking back then, when I, when I was a young skull full of mush, when I didn't know anything about anything, thinking, seems like there's a lot of wrath in the New Testament, too. Right? Because I, re- I was reading my Bible all the time. You look at Ananias and Sapphira, they tell a lie, it's like, boom, they drop dead. And the more I learned about the gospel, I realized that the supreme act of wrath in the whole Bible is actually the cross of Jesus. That if you want to see what the God of wrath is like, look at the cross. 
And what happens at the cross of Jesus is God pouring out all of his wrath, all of his anger, and all of his disappointment and hatred of spiritual adultery on the only person who was ever faithful. So that all the spiritual adulterers could be forgiven and be counted as faithful. That's what happens in the New Testament. And because of the cross, God's honor is preserved, his justice served, we experience forgiveness. And this actually is what happens in in this story next. That God's anger is uh, satiated. And notice what happens as we move on to the next point, the improvised intercession. It says in verse um, 4, it says, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the fear, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you uh, kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal pure. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman into his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose, left the congregation, and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, that the man of Israel and the woman threw their belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. So what happens here? First God comes, he's angry. And he tells Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sight of the people. Now, hanging sounds bad, but this is worse than hanging because the word there is actually impale. In other words, he says, take all, basically those who were, even if they committed adult spiritual adultery or not, if their people did. In other words, the buck stops with the leaders. And he says, so I want you to take the leaders of these people and I want you to impale them in the sight of the people so that they may know like what happens, right? Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then he says, I want you to actually root out the people who actually did this. And I want you to punish them as well. And so something between that and the, in verse six Israel must have become very, a plague started, broke out. And Israel became very disturbed. And that's what you see happening in verse 6, that Israel is gathered around the tent of meeting, weeping, that, that some kind of revival is happening. And in other words, people are spiritually um, getting with the program and they're realizing how they have offended God. And while this is happening, while this is happening, an Israelite soldier brings a Midianite woman at, at, almost like he's sort of tiptoeing through the crowd. Shh, they're all praying right now. And it says he's taking them to his brothers is actually what the, the language says. And he does that in the, in the midst of the people. It's almost this flagrant violation. The people are repenting. The people are trying to get with the program. And this guy comes with a woman through the middle of the, the people and he is going to sleep with her. And, and in fact, that's what he does. And it says in verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose, left the congregation, and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. And the man of Israel and the woman threw her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel stopped. So what Phinehas does, Phinehas is a priest, and Phinehas basically sees what's happening, he gets up, he leaves, he takes a spear, he goes into the tent where apparently this man and this woman are involved and he shish kebabs them. He takes one spear and puts it through both people and he puts it through, through pretty significant places for the sin that they are committing. Now, by the way, this is not out of character for Levites. If you think about it, this event is very much like Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf, remember Moses came down and they made a golden calf and God's anger was about to be released. And Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? 
Basically, who will stand against this? Who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites stood up. And it says, and the Levites went out, and they killed 3,000 of their brothers that day. In, in other words, the Levites are this fierce tribe that are known for their violence. And so who better to make priests than the fierce individuals that are known for their violence? That's what God has done. And Phineas more than all of them. And Phineas has come, and he has basically um, stood up, and he has taken action to end this sin in the middle of Israel. How is God going to react to that? How will God respond? Would he respond at all? Does it matter at all? And it's interesting because notice how God does respond. And we'd move right on to a perpetual priesthood. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So first of all, verses 10 and 11, um, we see in Phineas an incredible amount of emotional intelligence. Except it, it, the emotional intelligence he's exhibiting is not having empathy with how the people of Israel are feeling right now. It's empathy with how God himself feels. And apparently that's pretty uncommon. Notice what God says. It says that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that there was one person there was one man one priest who understood god's heart so much that he was willing to act on god's behalf so he he understood god's jealousy as if it was his own and not only that but in his act of faith to to mitigate it psalm 106 recounts this story and it says something amazing about phineas in fact, it says something about Phineas that is only said of one other person in the Old Testament, and it is the most famous, most important person of the Old Testament. What he says about Phineas is the same thing he says about Abraham. Remember when God cut a covenant with Abraham, he says he, he believed and he counted it unto him as righteousness. In Psalm 106, that where this story is recounted, it says that Phineas's act, we assume that he's talking about his act of faith here, he said he acted this way and God counted it to Phineas as righteousness. That, that Phineas's faith was counted to him as righteousness just as it was with Abraham. Whenever you hear something, when you see some famous statement from the Bible and God counted it to him as righteousness and God only says it to one other person, that person is probably also relatively important or very important. And so Phineas is counted as righteous because of this act and in verse 12 and 13, he says, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Now, the covenant of peace, that's the covenant of shalom. That's what that word there is, shalom. But he expands upon it. So probably the two covenants are really just one. One is the statement of it, and the other is an expansion. And he says, I will make him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Now, that means at least two things. One, priests mediate between God and man. So what God is saying is there will always be a priest who mediates between God and man. It will be perpetual. But secondly, Phineas's line will be the one who does that. In other words, every high priest from that point on would be from the line of Phineas. When you track the whole Bible, they go all the way. Phineas is the sort of progenitor of the high priests in Israel. Remember every year a different high priest stood up. Those were all descendants of 
Phineas, that Phineas was so important that his priesthood would be perpetual and ultimately it would be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus who would be the final priest, that Jesus who would offer the final sacrifice. And Jesus was the one in whom we believe for it to be counted to us as righteousness. So with all of those things that we've said today, now I want to go back to the fact that Phineas was black. Why does it matter that Phineas is black? And the short answer is, it shouldn't. It shouldn't matter one bit. It shouldn't matter, it shouldn't matter if he's black or white or Asian. Why does it matter if he's black? Well, in our context, we live in a context. In the context in which we live is the United States in 2021, and our country has had a history of slavery. We've had a history of Jim Crow. We've had a history of redlining. Am I saying the United States is a racist country? I'm not. But if you're going to be emotionally intelligent, if you're going to understand someone else's point of view and where they've come from, at least you've got to look back and say, you know, that stuff happened. And I see all the time people posting snarky memes about the church online, about, you know, what the, how the church has failed and how the church has done this and how the church has done that. You know what? I didn't become a Christian until I was an adult. So a lot of times I look at that and I'm like, well, I wasn't a part of that. But does that mean I don't need to understand what other people have gone through. It doesn't. Let me read to you something, why it's important. You see, the way we read the Bible affects things. The way we read the Bible, it's like, you know, when I, when I was in a ranger battalion, my first two years I spent as a, I carried a mortar. And whatever, whatever trajectory you shoot from, that's going to determine where you land. And so if your trajectory is wrong, you're going to land in a wrong place. So if your trajectory of Bible reading is wrong, you're going to land in a wrong place. So let me read you what Daniel Hayes said about Phineas. He said, imagine the different route American Christianity might have traveled if the translators of the King James Bible had known Egyptian and thus translated Phineas as the Negro. Early Americans would have read. Early Americans would have read that God made an eternal covenant with the Negro that all legitimate Israelite priests are descended from the Negro, that God credited righteousness to the Negro with such clear texts available, it would have been extremely difficult to defend slavery or to maintain any type of superiority or inferiority racial views. You see, unless we admit that we've read the Bible incorrectly from time to time, there's no going forward. I mean, people, if you look out, people are complaining about critical race theory and anti-racism and all these things. I don't blame them because if there's nothing else, you, why wouldn't you try and find some theory that can help us deal with this sort of elephant in the room? Well, the good news of the gospel is that we have the answer. We have the answer to the elephant in the room that is racism, that is hatred of minorities, whatever it is. And the, the, the answer is the gospel. But the gospel is, is simple. On one hand, trust Jesus and be saved from your sins. But the gospel also enables you to go as deeply as you want. The gospel means you can look back in history and say, you know what, I didn't do that stuff, but I could see how bad it is. And by, by admitting that, at least, maybe other people will be willing to talk to me and work with me. Let me close with this hopefully this will make sense to you. You know, many of you have heard, I, I post, did a couple posts on it. A few weeks ago, my father passed away. And I wasn't alienated from my father, nor did I know him very well. 
So probably about 20 years ago, um, we both ended up in the Pacific Northwest together, and I thought, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I need to forgive this guy for not being there during my childhood, and I'm going to go down to take my family down to meet him and basically say, hey, Dad, you know, let's start over. And I did that. And, you know, our girls were like at maximum cuteness age at the time, you know, irresistible. And I'm like, Dad, you know, the, the, you weren't there for my childhood, but you can be here for theirs and, you know, the whole thing. And he never took me up on it. And so probably about five or six years ago, although that was disappointing, I thought, you know what, I need to keep pursuing this. And so he was, he was in a convalescent center because he had a stroke and he couldn't move, even though his mind worked okay. And so I went down there to visit him and went down there to sit with him. And the whole time, he never asked a question about my childhood. I, I had the sense almost that he was afraid to ask a question about my childhood because you know what? My childhood was in fact horrible. I wouldn't wish my childhood on anybody. He never asked a question. And even though I forgave him, we never made a step forward. And why didn't we make a step forward? Because he, didn't, he, he wasn't willing to actually enter into who I was. I mean, I could forgive him, but I'm getting on with my life. If you want to have a relationship, you've got to say, what was it like? And had he, even, had, had he ever even just said, Tommy, what was your childhood like? And I could have laid it out. And if he would have just said, wow, I didn't know that. I, I'm sorry that happened. If he would have just said that, it would have changed everything. In other words, I wasn't asking for, for reparation, <laughs> reparations for my childhood. I wasn't asking for anything. Just can you realize what I went through and so we can build on that. He never did, and so we never did. Now apply that to the current situation between uh, black churches and white churches and minority churches and white churches where white people oftentimes, we just sort of say, hey, we just need to forgive everybody and move on. That's true. But unless there is an acknowledgement of what has actually happened, unless there's at least a, wow, I didn't know that that really happened, we can't move forward. So here's your, your, your task, right, is if you go out. Um, those of you who have friends who are not like you, ask them. Ask them what they think about church. Ask them about their lives. In, in other words, exercise emotional intelligence with them. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray this morning um, that you would give us um, soft hearts, that you would give us um, confidence in the gospel, that no matter what accusation is brought against us, we know that in you we are safe and we are secure, and that we can actually be people who lead in the area of reconciliation, lead in the area of repentance. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen.